edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. As I always say, a week is a an eternity in politics. And once again, a million things have happened in the last seven days. Um, explosive testimony in impeachment. The Republicans staged a storming of a skiff. Never Trumpers like myself were called human scum by the president of the United States in a tweet. Oh, and special forces killed the ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi. On top of that, the president got booed at a World Series game here in Washington, D.C. If you're a Nats fan, sorry, you guys lost three games in a row. I frankly don't care. I'm a Yankees fan, so I'm bitter. Whatever. However, the booing at the Nats game was quite hilarious. I'll get into that in a minute. But I mean, there's just been so much going on. So I'm going to talk a little bit about almost all of those things. And my guest this week is someone who is super smart and really, really knowledgeable about Russian information warfare and what's going on in that part of the world. Molly McHugh, she is an excellent, excellent resource on this issue. And I thought everything that's been going on with Syria, Turkey, the Russians, stepping in to fill the vacuum now that the United States is retreating from parts of the Middle East, I thought she'd be a good person to come in and talk a little bit about what this means and the tactics that the Russians are using and the way that Donald Trump speaks about things, how it's straight out of a Russian propaganda disinformation warfare playbook. It's um, it's really scary shit. So, But important for people to know, I think, that people who listen to my podcast, you know, my audience... You guys, I hope, are smarter after every episode and learn things that you didn't know before or that you don't hear necessarily explained in the mainstream media. So stay tuned for Molly McHugh. It's a really fascinating conversation about how the Russians use different tactics and and how prevalent it actually is and what's going on and why we as Americans should be paying attention to what the hell's happening and not listening to Donald Trump and his nonsense trying to deny that it's happening. So that's coming up in a little bit. Where should I start? Um, well, I'm going to start with last week real quick. So Ambassador Bill Taylor, who was the acting ambassador to the Ukraine, testified last week and gave really explosive testimony, basically summing up the fact that there was a quid pro quo going on between the United States and Ukraine, that Donald Trump was obsessed with finding dirt on his political opponent, Joe Biden and his son, and this whole conspiracy theory with Ukraine and this DNC server, all of that, everything that we'd suspected was going on that the whistleblower laid out uh, in their complaint was true, pretty much. And Ambassador Bill Taylor is a 50-year public servant, okay? This guy's um, credentials were unimpeachable, unimpeachable. West Point graduate, Vietnam veteran, decorated uh, officer in the Marines. Uh, I I think, no, I'm sorry, Army in Vietnam. He served as ambassador in a lot of hot zones across the world from Afghanistan Uh, to he was the Ukrainian ambassador in the past. He served multiple presidents. This guy has a squeaky clean, impeccable record. Okay, he is the epitome of an honorable, squeaky clean, straight and narrow public servant. 
He was asked to come out of retirement specifically by the Secretary of State Pompeo to take over this job as the Ukrainian ambassador after the other one, Yovanovitch, was pushed out. Remember, I talked about this in in a couple episodes ago. Giuliani and his cronies didn't like Yovanovitch because she was actually cracking down on corruption and uh, not interfering, but wasn't she wasn't on board with the shenanigans that Giuliani and his cronies were pulling over there in Ukraine. So they pushed her out and they got her removed from her position relatively uh, a couple of weeks before she was or months before her term was up. And um, that's now under investigation. So Bill Taylor was asked personally by Mike Pompeo to come in and take this job. And he didn't want to do it at first. His wife wasn't in favor of it. But Yovanovitch convinced him to do it because she knew that if anyone could be uh, a a good faith actor on the ground in Ukraine, it was Bill Taylor because it was a mess. It still is with this nonsense with Trump and Giuliani and the corruption there. It's just it's a mess. So Bill Taylor gave his testimony last week, and it was reported that Republicans were like ashen after they heard this guy's testimony because he came with receipts. He had copious notes that he took for every conversation, every meeting. I mean, he had it all laid out. A prosecutor's dream, an investigator's dream witness. And so he was also one of the people who was involved in the text messaging back and forth that we heard earlier in the month where Kurt Volker, who resigned from the State Department after it was revealed that Ukraine was involved and Giuliani and all of that whole thing. Kurt Volker was one of the first people to resign from the State Department in the aftermath of that. And he testified and provided text messages between him, Ambassador Taylor, and the EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. And it was about the discussions, what was happening with Ukraine and the money and all that whole thing. And Bill Taylor was the guy that was like, wait, you're telling me that we're holding up crucial military aid to help the Ukraine Ukrainians fight off Russia for a political campaign? This is crazy. So and it was Sondland who was like, call me because he knew to get off text messaging with this kind of crap. Right. So that's who that's Bill Taylor. He is a pivotal piece of this puzzle. And his testimony was devastating for the president. If we were in a criminal trial, call that guy. He testifies. Case closed. I don't know a jury in the world that would not believe Bill Taylor. Well, as a result of this last week, the president of the United States tried to do everything he possibly could to distract from how devastating Bill Taylor's testimony has been. He went and complained on Twitter that he was that this was a the impeachment's illegal and that he it was a lynching, which sparked a couple days of of discussion about the term using the term lynching. I spoke about this on uh, CNN on Don Lemon show and just how inappropriate it was to use the terms to use it in this context. Um, it's just you know so Trump knows what he's doing. He likes to throw out this kind of racial red meat and gets everybody up riled up. I mean, it's inappropriate. It should be addressed, but don't let it be a distraction from the bigger picture of what's happening, you know. Then he tried to discredit Bill Taylor, of course. I mean, the playbook, it writes itself, right? We've seen it a million times. So Trump comes out and he starts tweeting about never Trumpers and calling Bill Taylor a never Trumper and his lawyers, the the leader of the never Trumpers. (laughs) I mean... 
And then he calls us, accuses never Trumpers of being human scum. That's what we are. We're worse than the do nothing Democrats. We're human scum. Unbelievable coming from the president of the United States. Are you kidding me? I mean, and of course it was never Trumpers unite at that point. We were proud to be human scum and uh, we're team, you know, human scum. It was, it was just, you just have to laugh at it to stop yourself from just going completely nuts from how inappropriate and disrespectful this president is of his office. Every day it's something else. But his attempt at trying to smear Bill Taylor is actually a pretty pathetic one because everyone knows that Bill Taylor, anyone who matters, I mean, the crazy Trump cultists, it doesn't matter what anyone says about anything, but I'm talking about people in Washington, senators, Republican senators in the Senate who are going to have to ultimately preside as the jury in his impeachment trial. You're going to tell me they know deep down inside. I mean, there have been many articles written about how the, the Trump is tearing apart the Republican caucus, no shit, and how these Republican senators are really struggling with their political futures and doing what's right. Because they all know that Donald Trump has committed impeachable offenses. They know that his decisions like pulling out of Syria were are reckless and put the put the country at risk. How he is cozied up, cozied up to Russia and others. How this is this is a problem in the long term for the United States. They know this. But they've been too cowardly thus far to really speak up. And when they do, they stick their head out a little bit that the president comes after them. And look what happened to Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham was really forceful about the president's rash decision to pull out of Syria and the costs of that and the betrayal of our Kurdish allies. I mean, Lindsey Graham was was really pretty strong on it. The president told him, stay in your lane, stick to Judiciary Committee. Don't worry about what I'm doing. And Lindsey Graham tempered in his in his criticism. I mean, come on. So, you know, speaking of impeachment, there has been movement in that area as well, because the, the, the Republicans and the president have been ridiculous with screaming the secret process. This impeachment process is illegal. And no, it isn't. Number one, and there's been nothing illegal about what the Democrats have done. The fact that they haven't held a vote to formalize the impeachment inquiry is in the greater scheme of things, inconsequential. There's nothing in the constitution or statute anywhere that says there has to be a vote. Nothing. It's just been kind of customary to do it, but it's not required. And this whole nonsense that Republicans have been screaming about this is happening in secret behind closed doors and the, and Republicans are being left out is bullshit, complete bullshit. It's just a tactic to trip because they don't they can't argue the merits. They can't argue the merits of what's going on. The evidence is mounting up. It's piling up against Trump. And with every witness that has decided to 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 go against the State Department's instructions to not cooperate or or the White House instructing people not to cooperate with testifying with subpoenas, you know, defying them. There, more and more people have said, no, the hell with that, we're testifying. There's still a few that are refusing to, but the ones who are testifying, woo, they are devastating the narrative here that the White House and his and and their people are trying to put out there. They, they're just blowing it apart. So they're arguing process. It's law school 101. If you can't argue the law, you argue the process, right? You try to get off on a technicality kind of thing. 
And last week, um, my guest, former Congressman, Republican Congressman Charlie Dent, he made the point that Democrats really need to just have the damn vote to take that talking point away from Republicans. And I kind of agreed with him on that because this, this is what's ginned up these Republicans and given them the fuel to say that the Democrats are doing something wrong. Well, guess what? They're finally going to have the vote. Reported this week that the Democrats have decided, all right, Nancy Pelosi's like, okay, we're going to have this damned vote so that there's full transparency and we're still at the freaking Republicans will shut the hell up with this. (laughs) She didn't say that. Those are my words. (laughs) But wouldn't that be glorious if Nancy Pelosi said that? Uh, But, you know... (laughs) Republicans last week, they pulled the stunt. We probably heard about this. They stormed the skiff. Now, what is a skiff? It's a secured room where you do t- conduct top secret information. It's, it's wiped so that there's no, you can't bring in any electronics. There's no surveillance. You can't have anything in this room. And skiffs are used to view classified information, to have classified uh, testimony, things like that. And their uh, SCIF, I think, stands for Secured Compartmentalized Information Facility, I think. Um, or Sensitive Compartmentalized Information Facility. I forget. But anyway, it's um, that's what a SCIF is. So if you hear that, hear that term. And these idiots led by the biggest asshole, one of them in Congress, Matt Gates from Florida. This guy is a clown and a half, man. I, I don't understand how people vote for people like this, but whatever, that's his up to his constituents in Florida. This guy led about two dozen Republicans in the storming of a skiff because in protest that they were not given information, they're not being allowed to question witnesses. Well, come to find out that there are actually over 40 Republicans who've been allowed into these, these hearings. They're not really hearings, they're depositions of these witnesses. The Republicans who sit on the three respective committees who are, who are overseeing the impeachment, intelligence, judiciary, and oversight. They've all been allowed in. They can question witnesses. They, and, and the Democrats have said they will eventually release the transcripts. But they're trying to act like adults as if this were like a grand jury type of situation, right? When you have grand jury testimony, it's done in secret. And you get the transcripts later after you petition the judge to release them. That's how it works in a criminal system. Now, this isn't a criminal proceeding, but it is, in fact, a judicial proceeding. And a judge just, as the D.C. Circuit Court just, just ruled on this and acknowledged that the impeachment inquiry that the Democrats are conducting right now, before the vote, is a judicial proceeding and that it is subject to 6E evidence rules, which is releasing grand jury testimony. It's, you know, usually in secret and you need a judge to say yes or no. Okay. So this judge said in a 70 plus page ruling that, yeah, the Mueller, the Mueller investigation um, information they got from the grand jury in front of the grand jury should be released. They have until October 30th, I believe, to release it. Well, of course, the Justice Department's appealing this because they don't want that information released to the public because it just backs up. It shows you the evidence that Mueller used to put his report together, which was damning. It was not exonerating, by the way, despite what the president continues to say. It was not exonerating by any means. So we see the evidence. It just makes it worse. 
But my point in bringing that ruling up and why it's significant now is because this crazy stunt that these idiot Republicans led by Matt Gates, the biggest idiot of them all, last week with this storming the skiff in protest because they're not being it's not being done in transparency in trans, it's not being done transparently is bullshit. It is a legal proceeding. It is a judicial proceeding according to the DC court and Republicans have been allowed in the room. The ones who are on the committee, not people who aren't on the committee like Matt Gates. And the reason Democrats are doing this is to avoid the kind of kangaroo court crap that these idiot Republicans are doing. It's, it's unbelievable. Not only did they do this and it was just a, a shit show, but they brought their devices with them into the secured facility, which is a violation of some kind of law. And they should be stripped of their of their uh, security clearances. If my husband, who has a security clearance, did that, he would lose his security clearance. It is a violation of the security clearance protocol. That's why they're called secured facilities. You're not allowed to bring any electronics into them. These idiot Republicans were making, doing interviews, taking, uh, doing phone calls, making phone calls from inside the skiff. They had like a sit-in in the skiff, for God's sakes. Ridiculous. So I really hope that they're censured or some kind of some kind of penalty happens because we can't have this kind of chaos and kind of national security compromise because these people are idiots. Something else I found out interesting that same day, Nancy Pelosi was not in the Capitol. She was attending her brother's funeral, which I found interesting because I don't think they would have been able to get away with that if Nancy Pelosi had been in the building. I'm sure Capitol Police was like, what do you want us to do here? We can't, we're going to arrest members of Congress Ah, for civil disobedience. I don't think so. They kind of just let them do it. They just overran (laughs) the Capitol Police, just barged into the skiff. If Nancy Pelosi had been there in the building, I just don't see her allowing that kind of a spectacle. I really don't. But for the impeachment process, we're going to get a vote finally so that Republicans are going to have to find a new a new BS talking point to try to discredit this. But thus far, everything's been above board. It's a legal proceeding. Trump's going to have to find something else to complain about. All roads point to his impeachment and he knows it, which leads me to the <laughs> the World Series. OK, so. Sunday night, game five of the World Series, Donald Trump decides to show up at Nat Stadium thinking he's going to get a hero's welcome, I guess, because that morning he announced that special operations, U.S. special ops killed the ISIS leader, al-Baghdadi. Okay, you know, that's a good win for America. That's great. Except that the press conference where he made the announcement was another complete spectacle, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So he gets to the stadium and they announce him and they put a, they show a picture of him and Melania on the big screen and you just hear audible boos. Thousands of people at Nat Stadium booed the hell out of Donald Trump. It was glorious. And you see, they have video, you see him, he's like clapping, he's smiling. And then you see the moment that he realizes that he's getting booed and heckled and you just see his whole face change. <laughs> you don't like it too much there, do you, Mr. President? And there were other, there were videos all over Twitter of sections of the stadium chanting, lock him up. <laughs> oh, you reap what you sow. Yeah, 
Now, there's been some debate in the media. Some people like Joe Scarborough on MSNBC, he said that, oh, no, that wasn't appropriate. We don't do that in America. We shouldn't be cheering on the locking up of political adversaries, et cetera, et cetera. I get his point, And normally I would agree. Unfortunately, we're way past that level of civility right now. Donald Trump has dishonored the office of the presidency and lowered discourse so badly in this country that people giving him a taste of his own medicine at this point, I don't have a problem with because the respect for that office is earned. And Donald Trump has not earned that. If anything, he has lost it. And he continues to disrespect that office every day. So too bad when he starts acting like an adult, then we'll respect that office again. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't agree at this point that it's that it was so awful that people booed him. Get over it. It's free speech. This is the United States. Now the lock him up chance. Well, you know, it's a sporting event. Give people a break. But it's OK when Donald Trump does it. Right. When 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 Trump has from since for three years now, the lock her up chance at the at rallies at the convention constantly with Hillary Clinton. But he gets he gets it turned back on him and that's a problem. Eh, whatever. Uh, good. Good. I'm glad he heard it. Hurt his little fragile ego over there. <laughs> of course, he hasn't acknowledged it yet. I anticipate he may. If it's going to be another Sean Spicer moment, like where they're going to come out and say, Oh, people were cheering. It was a record crowd because Trump was there. Some kind of North Korea level propaganda bullshit <laughs> to, to, to tell the Fox News crowd that people actually didn't boo Trump. We didn't hear what we heard. Please. But yeah, they had uh, signs, impeach Trump, huge banners uh, hung from like the upper level at the stadium. They had uh, veterans for impeachment signs behind home plate. So every time the camera was on the batter, you saw it. It was great. <laughs> but then again, the sad part of it is it's just how divided the country is. I mean, it's it really is. Uh, we're in a terribly divisive time, but you now Trump contributes to it every day. He contributes to it. And even when a solid win where he should get full credit and it should be a unifying moment of national pride, like the killing of Baghdadi. Even then, Donald Trump manages to turn it into a divisive event. That's all about him. All about him. Anyone who saw that press conference had to just say, this guy. He can't even just stick to the script with something of this grad of this level of, of um, importance of the gravity. You know, I mean, the magnitude of what took place, killing of Baghdadi over there in Syria is huge. It was a risky operation. Our special forces performed brilliantly, as they always do. No casualties, no American casualties, thank God. And the head of ISIS is someone who we've been searching for, a brutal, horrible, evil bastard who beheaded American journalists and and other horrific things that they've done and ISIS with the caliphate, all of that. I mean, Baghdadi was the new bin Laden and we got him. And it should be a moment we should be all proud of. And I'm glad about that. And I will give a little credit to Trump for making the call to greenlight the operation. However, 
Even Donald Trump, back when Obama greenlit the operation to get bin Laden, said that, oh, it was the Navy SEALs that got bin Laden, not not Obama. So stop giving him so much credit. <laughs> he didn't pick up the weapon. Yeah, okay. Well, Baghdadi actually wasn't killed by special our special operators. He blew himself up. He martyred himself in the eyes of his people, but, and took three of his children with him. Another example of how evil he is. But it was a... In, uh, flawlessly executed operation but some people as more information comes out they say listen our guys were able to do it in spite of donald trump and his erratic decision making and his erratic ill-advised decision to pull troops out of syria all of that this this operation had been months in the making and thank thankfully human human intelligence helped us pinpoint baghdadi yes like the CIA and what they do, that those deep state folks over there that Trump is always disparaging. Yeah. If it weren't for the human intelligence on the ground and our Kurdish allies also, by the way, who helped out, the ones that we've abandoned, that Trump thinks, oh, well, there was just, uh, let him him fight it out just over some sand. Yeah, them. They were instrumental in helping facilitate this also. So thank you to the Kurds and their intelligence. Apparently, we had human operations on the ground. They had an informant. They were able to turn one of the wives and a courier. Um, The courier was also instrumental in catching bin Laden, by the way. If you've ever seen Zero Dark Thirty, great movie, by the way. Uh, But anyway, and they were able to get details about the compound where where Baghdadi was and and the area he was in. Um, Job well done. Now, if Trump would have just stuck to the script... Everything would have been fine and people would have been able, they would have been able to take the victory lap and leave it at that. But no, what does he decide to do? He decides that he's going to go into detail about the operation and how Baghdadi was whimpering like a dog and he died like a dog and all of this. And I, I don't know what Trump's obsession is with dogs, like he or his aversion to them. He hates dogs. That's just something else to add to his horrible character. Why? Who hates dogs like that? Like, come on. And he kept going on and people are like, well, wait a minute. How was he able to even know this? They most likely didn't have audio feed inside a tunnel where they trapped Baghdadi and where he blew this thing up. So Trump probably made that whole thing up. But there were some really good articles uh, at justsecurity.org, which I reference often because they have such excellent um, writings by people who have worked in the national security space for years or either retired and or moved on to other things. And their expertise is really, really good. And one of their writers brought up the point that, you know, that Trump in all the information that he gave in that press conference was unnecessary and, and that it, it, it actually compromised operations. Like he went into details about the kind of helicopters and where they left from. And I mean, what are you doing? We don't need all that. Like what are you, what's happening? And he also mentioned that he also tried to do something else, which annoyed me. And I noticed this when I heard it, he tried to say how, of course, that this was even a bigger, a bigger get than Obama, than, than Osama bin Laden. Of course, because he has to one up Obama constantly. This is so inappropriate. It's distasteful. It's not wanting up. Well, first of all, Osama bin Laden led the uh, led the operation that killed three thousand Americans on American soil. 
So let's not diminish the significance of getting Osama bin Laden. Okay, like stop it. Why are we even comparing? It's just just so childish. I just don't get this guy. He's such a child. But Baghdadi was a different kind of leader. You know, the way Al Qaeda operated and the way ISIS operated were a little bit different. And ISIS with with them establishing the caliphate and using social media and encouraging lone lone wolf operations. Those were very different than the way that Al Qaeda operates, which they try to operate in secret and you have to be like initiated in and they try to go for the big spectacle terrorist operations as opposed to lone wolf things. So Baghdadi, um, he's getting rid of him was a big deal. It really was. But it also, we have to be careful about retaliation and the way that you handle the post aftermath of these kinds of killings of these leaders. And another article in Just Security by a for, by Ambassador Dana Shell Smith, who worked in the Obama State Department while she was there, I think it's a woman, um, while um, the Obama, the Osama raid was happening. And she was saying how they had to prepare for the talking points, make sure everyone was on the same page with allies and everything else. That it's a very coordinated multi-agency effort after the mission. And it doesn't feel like that happened here because of the way how freewheeling Trump was with information. I mean, they even put out a photo. Like, remember the famous photo of Obama and Biden and Hillary and everybody and the Joint Chiefs in the Situation Room as the the Bin Laden raid was happening. It's a very famous photo. Well, the 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 Trump people put out a photo too, and it just looks really staged. And everyone was like, uh, "Is that what did, did this happen contemporaneously, or was it staged, or what?" And what the sad part about it is that we even have to question the authenticity of it all. Because Trump lies so much, it's a shame. But he also was just something else that I, I couldn't believe. He admitted that he did not notify the Democrats. He didn't notify the Speaker of the House. He didn't notify the Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee or um, the, uh, who else on the Democrat side? I guess it should have been the House Intel Chair and... There's the gang of eight that are notified about things like this. And there's even even smaller, the gang of four. But like when the Obama, when the Osama bin Laden raid raid happened, they were notified. And and, and the ambassador in JustSecurity.org in her piece, she said, we didn't even think twice about not notifying the minority. Like that would never happen because they they are the heads of these important committees that need to know what's going on. The Speaker of the House is third in line. It was president, vice president, speaker in the line of succession. Second in line, I guess. You don't notify the speaker of the house? What are you doing? Politicizing something like this. But that's Donald Trump's MO. He also notified Russia because we had to fly over Syrian airspace and I guess Russia controlled some of that. So they had to notify Russia allegedly but Donald Trump and his presser actually thanked Russia first before anybody else. What? And he forgot. I mean, he ended up finally thanking the Joint Chiefs and the and the Delta guys and, you know, the Intel community. OK, 
But he never thanked the CIA director, Gina Haspel, who I'm sure the CIA, as I mentioned, was instrumental in this because they're the ones that run human intelligence. So what? But you, oh, he made sure he thanked Russia more than once, by the way. For God's sakes, you got to be kidding me here. And for all this bluster about, oh, we're bringing the troops home and this and that, Trump went on to talk about how we're, we're keeping troops there, actually, some troops in Syria, to protect the oil. What? So it's more important to protect oil than it is to protect our allies and, and people? I mean, they are getting slaughtered, the Kurds. Chemical warfare and every chemical weapons were being used, reportedly. Come on. But Trump, you know, he's got to, he's going to protect oil. Makes sense. Maybe we'll cut a deal with them. That's not what our military does. That's not what we do. So all this nonsense about the reason why we're pulling out of Syria is because he's bringing the troops home. Bullshit. Because troops are still staying there. Yeah. Russia. Trump. Oh, one more thing before I, uh, before that, before I bring in Molly. Former chief of staff, John Kelly in an interview over the weekend said that he regrets resigning because he looks back and sees right now how the president is completely out of control, getting himself impeached. And he said, I warned the president when I left that he better not hire a yes man as his chief of staff, that he needs to have someone there that can tell him, no, Mr. President, that's not legal. No, that's not proper. Otherwise, he's going to get himself impeached. That's what John Kelly said, who's also a four-star general, Marine general, okay? We can talk about John Kelly's tenure as chief of staff, the fact that he now sits on the board of one of those private prisons that's um, detaining immigrants, and that's a whole different conversation. But his credibility as a Marine general, once again, is unquestioned. And things seem to be somewhat in order when he was there, at least. But he was one of the few adults in the room left. And when he when he departed, it's all been downhill since then. Mick Mulvaney has been a disaster. Rudy Giuliani's running around as the shadow secretary of state doing God knows what and God knows where. I mean, it's been a shit show. Worse than from the day one from day one. It's always been a shit show, but worse. So John Kelly said this. Well, of course, Trump comes out, criticizes John Kelly and says he never said that to me. If he had said that to me, I would have thrown him out of the Oval Office. He just want, he's just saying these things because he wants back in the action. <laughs> okay. I don't think so. I mean, I think John Kelly feels like for the country's sake, maybe he wishes he hadn't left because it, things are in such disarray. But uh, he he's also probably like, thank God I'm not in the middle of this shit show. But what does the press secretary do? This Stephanie Grisham chick. She's terrible, by the way. She comes out and says in a Twitter, in a statement, oh, I don't think it was on Twitter. I think it was at, on Fox News. She actually said, that John Kelly was unequipped for the genius of this president. <laughs> what? <laughs> Again, North Korea style propaganda. Unbelievable, these people. They're just, uh, ta- our taxpayer money is paying these people's salaries. Unbelievable. But that's a good segue. Propaganda, the Russians, Trump's behavior. This is stuff that, is is we look going into 2020 we know that the russians are still trying to interfere with our election um and they're not going to stop they're not and donald trump has done nothing about it he still continues to deny that the russians were involved 
uh, calling it a hoax, calling the Mueller investigation a witch hunt. Former Vice, Vice President Joe Biden was on 60 Minutes over the weekend. He was asked about this and he called Trump an idiot <laughs> for denying that Russia was involved. Well, he's right. The Russians will call him a useful idiot. And we talked with John Cipher about the meaning of that. But I'm going to bring in Molly McHugh to talk in more depth about the extent by which the, the, the Russians are engaging in this, some of the other ways, the tactics that they're using, and her expertise as a counter-Russian information campaign and, and hybrid warfare expert is pretty significant. She was also, um, she was also uh, on a project over there with uh, Georgia, Moldova. She's very well-versed in that part of the world. So next up... Molly McHugh. You know, with everything that's been going on in foreign policy, I often am asked, well, why should we care? Why do we care what's happening in Syria and Ukraine and with the Turks? And why do we care? And I felt it was really important to bring someone on who is accomplished in this area, who can speak with authority on it and really put it all in perspective, which is why I'm really thrilled to be able to bring on Molly McHugh as a guest on Honestly Speaking, because she has worked really hard on these issues. She's also an information warfare expert, and she's going to join me right now so we can talk a little bit about why Americans should care about what's going on with Ukraine, Turkey, Syria, and the role that Putin is playing in all of this. Molly, welcome to Honestly Speaking. This is your first time as my guest, so I'm happy to have you. Thanks for having me on. Glad to do it. Molly and I actually uh, serve side by side on the Stand Up Republic uh, board as board members. She's on the foundation side. I'm on the the C4 side. So I'm um, glad to join forces in a, in a different capacity, spreading our message of liberty <laughs> and saving the republic. <laughs> and promoting democracy even inside the United States these days. <laughs> no kidding. Oh my God, Molly. Uh, you know, as someone who who works on this every day and your knowledge on the type of just disinformation that the American people are flooded with, what alarms you the most? And then we'll get into a little bit more about Ukraine and, and Syria, but I just, I want people to understand why we should be concerned about the level of disinformation that's being flooded into our zeitgeist. Yeah, I think the, the sort of the bookends of, of my vast spectrum and growing uh, uh, sort of range of concerns on this topic um, fit together. And one is that um, we have learned very little since 2016, despite sort of great efforts at transparency and exposing things and whatever else. I feel that, um, you know, people have these sort of talking points that they throw out about disinformation, particularly about sort of Russian state disinformation that targets. American society. But what that actually means and how it is applied to us doesn't really seem to have sunk in in a deeper way in terms of how people um, daily on a daily basis interact with their media environment and what they consume and, and how that impacts them. And I think the other end of that is nobody who should be taking any responsibility for doing anything about the kinds of, of disinformation campaigns we saw in 2016 has done anything about it, in particular social media platforms um, and others. And, you know, the the attempts to regulate this or provide new guardrails on it. And what we've seen then in the ensuing three years has just been a proliferation of this activity. And it's not just state actors, 
although there was some new report from the Oxford um, Computational Propaganda Lab that it was some terrifying number, like 70 states are now documented as having the equivalent of, of aggressive troll farm activities to sculpt narrative environments online. Um, and then there's this proliferation of non-state actors that are doing this either on a commercial basis or mm -hmm. political factions or these sort of weird far right, far left alignments that are happening um, in the information environment. So I think twofold, we have this kind of for some reason, no one really gets how this is working on us and that it does, in fact, work and that on a daily basis, we're still having these arguments about well, do, does it really do anything? Is it just stupid memes? You know, what's what's the outcome? And then at the same time, it's so clear that this is a powerful toolkit because everybody is using it as an asymmetric tool to um, achieve objectives and to attack opponents and in many cases to win political campaigns. Right. And that leads us to back to the Mueller report, volume one, which I felt did not get its just due. Because Definitely not. Was, everyone was freaking out, right, over volume too because of the obstruction of justice stuff and I which was valid I mean that's important too um, but I have tried to 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 make a point to always bring up volume one and encourage people to go and read even just the summary of volume one but what I like my hair catches on fire every time I hear someone say but there was no collusion there was nothing Donald Trump did nothing wrong and I'm like did you guys read volume one did you see the extent of the Russian uh, propaganda campaign against us and what they did. Can you just sum up a little bit um, why volume one was so scary and the, the kind of um, operation that was uncovered by Bob Mueller and his investigators and how the Russians are still doing it? Yeah, I think you know, you're exactly right. I think from the beginning, um, even in some of the earlier Mueller indictments that came out before the um, full report was done, there was tremendous detail captured, even in the sort of limited indictments where they just put what they needed to in uh, sort of on the page. Um, there was tremendous detail captured about an ongoing, essentially, counterintelligence operation that his team was running, sort of documenting and showing exactly how, even on these limited operations, Russia is devoting money, resources, personnel, time, um, a tremendous amount of focus to achieving sometimes even very small objectives in the American political environment um, in these sort of guerrilla asymmetric spaces where it's very gray and there's a lot of space to play around and no one really pays attention and no one takes it seriously. Um, and just there was so much detail in there that I don't think has been given enough attention. The no. way that, that Russia finances intelligence operations in these extremely, in many cases, there's sort of self-financing using Bitcoin generation and, and sort of ad revenue and other things, but ways of generating money and, and funneling money into to Russian intelligence operations that make it completely hands-off if you're trying to document what it actually is. Um, the way that they recruited people into um, participating in these campaigns, the way that they were funneling money and time and, and influence into the U.S. space, the themes around which they organized. I think even people in the Senate and in the House who are very serious on countering Russian influence and other state influence in the American political landscape have been overly focused on this issue of ads, which Facebook and Twitter are really happy to be like, yes, let's do something about the ads because the ads didn't matter. I mean, right. yes, okay, fine, the ads were bad, but the real issue was the false accounts embedded in American communities online, meaning to influence us as people who look like us. And the fact that that 
so uh, easily sort of evades any defenses that we have in terms of how we evaluate information um, uh, that comes in front of us, uh, how we source it, how we how we judge it. Do we trust this? Do we not? Um, and there still really hasn't been enough accountability on all that. So I think from from top to bottom, whether it be financing information, the deployment of Russian personnel to the United States uh, to gather information, to make contacts, to, to influence people, um, the spinoffs, things like the Putina investigation and others. I mean, there's so much detail in there about how Russia uses money, time, people, information, technology to influence the American landscape, often in very small ways that we just don't pay attention to, but that are having a tremendous amount of impact. Do you think that that is um, part of the failure, one of the many intelligence failures of the Trump administration as far as where their priorities are? I mean, it just feels as though Republicans in the Senate are uh, neglecting their duties to protect our country from the type of infiltration that we had in 2016. Clearly, Donald Trump won't even acknowledge that the Russians did this. He's still on this this witch hunt about, you know, some conspiracy about uh, a Ukrainian uh, company having a DNC server and all this nonsense. That is not where the focus should be. I mean, I've read some of the indictments that came out of the Mueller report. And, you know, obviously most Americans aren't going to take the time to do that. But some of the, not only what you described as far as the financing and the kinds of people they recruited, but the messaging, the wording that the Russians were using to stoke division in this country. And hearing some of the, the words that come out of Donald Trump's mouth, some of the things that he tweets, I mean, it looks like they, he plucked it straight from a Russian propaganda operation. I, it, what, I mean, what are we, what are we, how do we combat this? Like, I, I'm so astonished. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm like, how do we combat this? Well, this has been both one of the biggest problems or challenges of, of evaluating 2016 and what has happened after um, and sort of the impact of what we call Russian versus other has been this integration of Trump far right Russian other uh, disinformation um, in sort of half the far right hardcore conservative space half the total conspiracy verse that has taken over way too many things it has sort of migrated from infowars and its normalization in bright in breitbart and in podcasts and other things um straight on to fox news primetime and um in, into the mouths of congressmen in many cases and um and into the president and his twitter feed and i think um you know people really want to dismiss this stuff. Oh, this is just this crazy conspiracy stuff. Who really knows what QAnon is? Like, who really knows what you're talking about? Yeah. But there's two, I mean, there's two really good examples of this that we see recently of the, the sort of cultivation of conspiracy as a way to control information and narrative on um, on the right. And certainly some of this is happening on the left as well. But in, in these particular cases on the right, um, you have this you know, ongoing, long-term, multi-phased conspiracy about the DNC hack and the servers and its connection to, you know, there was, there was no Russia, there was no Russian attack. It was all this, you know, Ukraine attack that was made to look like Russia because they were just duping us the whole time. And it's not 52-dimensional chess. It's just crazy. And it's a total conspiracy. But, you know, the president of the United States and his personal lawyer believe it and used it to corrupt American diplomacy and the sort of pressuring of President Zelensky on these issues. Can you so that's just, sort of can, can you one say, concrete space. Can you just say <laughs> that again for people who – because there are a lot of people – 
who don't, like I said, they just don't follow this at the, yeah. at the same granular level that we do. Um, can you please explain that this idea that the Ukrainians have this mysterious DNC server and that they were really the ones who interfered in the election on behalf of Hillary Clinton, um, that how much of a bullshit conspiracy theory this actually is, and that, frankly, it's originated from Russian trolls, part of their disinformation, from what I understand. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, there, there are sort of multiple sources on this back in, you know, late 2016. But yeah, it's 100% made up. You can sort of track it back to, you know, 4chan, Reddit communities that spend a lot of time uh, kind of cultivating and stoking these conspiracies that then sort of seep out into other social media. But there is no truth to this. There's no truth to the idea that CrowdStrike is a Ukrainian company. It's actually a Russian, the guy that they're talking about. But that has nothing to do with this. There is no server. There was no Ukraine was really attacking the United States. This has been a narrative since uh, 2016, this idea that the real collusion was the Clintons and Ukraine and Soros and whoever else. Um, and it really has, if you look at it, has many arms and start sounding completely bonkers. But if you're one of those people who is uh, sort of open to conspiracy and when people ask the right question, you sort of look at it and say, hmm, you're right, there's not really good answers here, there must be something to this, then it's something that people have wanted to believe because it's a great distraction from um, the very concrete 400-page report that we got from Bob Mueller and his team showing that, in fact, it was all Russia and our intelligence community has documented it. The Dutch had infiltrated the GRU hacker cell that was responsible for many of these things and sat there and watched it while it happened and gave us intelligence in real time. So this idea that we're like not really sure it was the GRU, the Russian military intelligence unit, but that it could have been, you know, a couple guys in a basement in Ukraine is just 100% fabricated. I'm so um, glad you brought that up. Because a couple <laughs> weeks ago, um, before I knew I was going to be talking to you, I actually brought that up about, um, like, as this whole Ukraine debacle has unfolded and the different layers of it, because there's many, um, I actually went back and started to research some of the reporting mm-hmm. on how did this all start? And I completely forgot about the role of the Dutch because that yep. almost never gets brought up in all of this. And I don't understand why more uh, media outlets don't bring this up whenever Trump people try to say, well, we don't know how it started. And that's why John Durham is doing this investigation and why our attorney general is running all over the world trying to find the origins of the of this it, this witch hunt. I'm like, hello, the Dutch, like you just said, they infiltrated by accident, right? It wasn't, they didn't, they were doing other stuff and they felt kind of happened upon this. And they were like, holy shit, look at what we have. Um, Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because I don't think people really get it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. And I think you're right. And I'm actually really surprised that this hasn't been covered more in the United States. There was a big... sort of analysis piece done uh, on this from some Dutch, some really good Dutch reporters. And I think they did a pretty good documentary on some of it, but there hasn't been um, a lot of reporting on it in the United States. But basically, Dutch intelligence has extremely capable um, hackers and, and sort of technical capabilities themselves. Um, and in, in as part of their, one of the major things they contribute to sort of NATO collective intelligence is this capability. And as part of that normal duty, they were sort of tracking back normal suspicious activity, trying to figure out how it was connecting to 
um, or where it was coming from, uh, whether it was Russian or not. And they sort of, you know, got right into this, and I forget which technique they used, but got right into one of the computers inside this room in, um, I think it was in St. Petersburg, yeah, um, where they had sort of masked this cell as something in a college. Um, but it was, you know, the room where 12 hacker guys hang out and do their GRU hacking duties. Um, and they sat there and watched what they were doing. And then they noticed they were doing the stuff targeting the DNC and other American targets. Um, and then to sort of verify all of it, um, you know, sort of hacked the cameras in the hallway right. and documented um, the people coming in and out of the room that this uh, supposed independent cell of um, hackers was, in fact, being um, coordinated by and oversaw, overseen by um, well-known GRU personalities. Um, so, so this is 100% with photographic and video evidence with IP addresses and probably keystroke logs um, documented that this was a Russian state intelligence attack on the United States. And there's just no way around that. Right. It's indisputable. The, the Dutch shared this information with our intelligence uh, agencies. And at that in, point... In real time, in as right, far as we know. Right. That's right. <laughs> and we were like, oh, well, thank you. And we're talking like, what was this, like 2015? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure the exact start date, yeah. but, by, but by 2016, right. by they, the beginning of 2016, they, they were up on this and were watching it. Yeah. Right. I think they started, if I remember, in 2014, I think is when they when they did the hack, when the Dutch hacked in. Like, I think oh. that's right. And then they started watching other stuff, and then they saw what was happening with, with the, uh, the U.S. hacks by the Russian intelligence officers, and then they passed it along to us. So, so our intelligence community had this information along with... George Papadopoulos drunk in a bar bragging about how the Russians allegedly have this, you know, uh, information on Hillary's emails. And hello, that was how this whole thing started. It was not this other wacky, crazy stuff that is out there in the public sphere that the president of the United States continues to repeat. His acolytes continue to repeat. An entire news organization, Fox News, is now behaving like an extension of, of, of RT, of a Russian propaganda state-run channel. I, I, I am just floored by how obvious this is. On the conspiracy side in particular, I just like I said, I don't think we pay enough attention to the far reaching impact of things that are now completely made up. And yeah. uh, the, the normalizers of this or the people who want to give slightly more credit to the conservatives who amplify it will say, well, there are questions and this just exploits doubts. Well, sure. But another good example that this is sort of partially about us, but partially about others from the news right now is um, the story that came out late yesterday about um, how uh, Trump was taking the advice and counsel of, of President Putin and President Orban yes. um, or Prime Minister Orban in Hungary of um, of why he should not why he should distrust and, and not like Ukraine and, and not be eager to work with them. And neither of these things are a surprise. But I think the important thing to understand there is an intensive line of Russian disinformation propaganda targeting Hungary has been this issue of Hungarian language schools in Ukraine. This is super obscure. Americans will not care about this. But the point being, 
this very small issue of the Ukrainians have a new language law. They're trying to get everybody to study Ukrainian in school in addition to other languages. Um, and the Hungarians have been made very angry about this by the targeting of Russian propaganda, this idea that sort of the Hungarian minority in Ukraine is somehow being disadvantaged because the, the Hungarian language schools have to teach Ukrainian too. Um, but this has really created a divide between the states. Orban has used it as an issue to sort of hold up aid to Ukraine with from within the EU. So that whole line of propaganda and conspiracy um, has sort of sculpted Hungary in this way. And the other side of this um, has been the intensive effort, which Russia has really amplified and probably originated in some ways in the US, but this anti-Soros conspiracy stuff. Um, that Soros is behind all evil on the left and you know funding everything and has tentacles everywhere. Um, uh, Orban also hates Soros. Uh, they've been sort of warring over various issues within Hungary. And um, the sort of merger of these things from the Hungarian side, Russian propaganda, you know, makes you hate Ukraine. And then from the American side, which is Russian propaganda on Soros, has given you this propensity to believe Orban, mm -hmm. sort of merged nicely into this, oh, yeah, we should totally listen to Viktor Orban about <laughs> Ukraine, which is completely wrong. Right. And um, but, but just understanding the ways in which... Um, a conspiracy really does, over a period of time, distort and move an entire information landscape in a way that can have real impact on state objectives and foreign policy. Um, and the Russians will spend a ton of time doing this if they need to. Like They will invest in this anti-Soros narrative for years. They will invest in the Ukrainians really hate Hungarians anyway narrative for years until they have their moment to sort of make it take root. Um, and the long-term investments work out. And I think we ignore that those same narrative investments have happened within the United States on all sides of the political landscape. Um, and right now, the environment is so polarized and, and radicalized that I think we're all prone to easy triggering with the correct mechanisms. It's pretty remarkable to watch, um, especially since... It, it, as Americans, we all we since when have we ever been so uh, receptive and open to people like Putin? And... <laughs> You know, our, he's our enemy um, to other despots in this country, uh, in the world, where the president of the United States is so cozy with them, whether it's Saudi Arabia or, uh, you know, the Philippines. I mean, it's just quite remarkable that the president of the United States would be so welcoming of these things. I would imagine that Vladimir Putin never thought he would have such a gift. I think that's right. I think the the you know chaos presidency of Trump is a gift to just about any disruptor, but particularly someone who is um, as strategically focused as Putin. Um, and I just uh, it's you know it's we get stuck in these stupid loops sometimes of how we discuss these issues. Um, a, a recent example being Hillary Clinton's uh, sort of offhand remark that Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset. Right. Now I think there's. Uh, there's definitional issues that a lot of people have in understanding this. It does not mean she is a you know longtime undercover agent of Russia and like right. getting paid or whatever else. Right. 
But I think we sometimes get trapped in these, well, can you really prove X about somebody's relationship with the Kremlin when all you really need to look at is what comes out of their mouth? And that's all the Kremlin cares about. Like, mm -hmm. if they don't have to pay you, great. But if you're going to sit there and talk about a bu bunch of Russian stuff, then they love it. Right. Like, and like, I like endless wars and uh, whatever she said repeatedly at the debate. Illegal regime so, change right? wars. Illegal, illegal regime, regime change yeah. wars. Yeah, she'll just say it over and over until your eyes pop out of your skull. Which is a Russian but, propaganda uh, term, correct? It is. It is just nonsense. And look, I mean, Tulsi has a longer history on this. She's been to visit Assad a number of times. She has 100 percent ignored Russian and Syrian war crimes in Syria to claim that the issue is us and like we started this somehow and everything is us and we're bad and evil. And like, I don't care what you want to think about Tulsi Gabbard as a politician or her service record or whatever else, but what comes out of her mouth on foreign policy is straight out of RT headlines. And if you don't understand why that's a problem for the United States of America, then I'm sorry, you don't get it yet. Right. And, and um, that's, that's the bottom by, line. And then she's being pushed by Fox News now. Uh, she's yes. been on a bunch of times recently. Her and Jill Stein, who is another one. Um, and it's just, I'm like, what is And as happening? much as no one wants to, like, we all kind of wish Hillary would just not talk right now. It's <laughs> right. not going to help. <laughs> right. But the, the broader point that she was making, which was Russia supported Jill Stein very openly mm -hmm. for a reason, that it did have a disruptive impact on the split within the Democratic voting, um, that Russia is doing the same in terms of narrative and other bits in the current landscape and will happily peel off votes if they are able to. Like, that point is totally valid. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, it's now become this absurd defense of Tulsi Gabbard, which makes my head explode. But, um, but I think th this is the point, is like we get trapped in these silly arguments about like, well, is it really fair to say that someone is a Russian asset? Well, right. what we should be looking at is why are these foreign policy statements and objectives a problem? How are they helping our adversaries? Are they the right things for us? And uh, sort of discrediting them on that level. Um, and we just don't even do that. <laughs> like It becomes yeah. these. But I think that the point you just made about Fox News is also so critical and one that we really, really have not had to come to Jesus on since 2016, which is the, the two spaces where Russia is the most active are the far right and the far left. And these are long-term things where they have long-term relationships and, and sort of cultivation and objectives. Um, and there's been a lot of attention on overlap in far right because of Trump and not really enough in the far left. This has come up, especially in the Senate reports that are sort of going through um, internet research agency accounts, the sort of Russian troll farm accounts and what they were targeting and what they were doing. There's been a ton of documentation about um, uh, during 2016 that there was lots of support for Trump and Trumpist things, but also Bernie, lots of Bernie bros and fake Bernie accounts and other things for the same reason of anti-establishment, disruptor, you know, rip apart voting blocks, logic. Um, but the left hasn't really had to have the same reflection applied upon them as the right has had to do. And thus, I think, still don't really see the spaces and the narratives on the left where Russia has a well-established presence, the way that they use things like the intercept um, and sort of these other, uh, you know, seen as like truth-telling um, mm -hmm. leftist uh, outlets um, as ways to leverage narrative and, and stories at times. Well, I think... Um, the most glaring example that people would know is WikiLeaks. 
Right. And Julian Assange. Absolutely. Well, and Assange, and then his tie to Glenn Greenwald at, at, the, at Intercept. the Intercept, who also promotes Tulsi Gabbard, who, you who know. attacked me, by the way, last year when I went after. Greenwald? Um, yeah, he did. He came after Who me. also appears on Tucker Carlson. <laughs> yes. Well, this was about uh, when Kanye West was all of a sudden yes. becoming oh, the, yes. the poster child now for black liberation uh, and becoming Republicans. And I criticized. Um, I remember that. You remember yeah. that whole thing? And I criticized Kanye for being mentally unstable and we should not be giving him a platform because he's out of his mind and so glenn greenwald came after me saying that by me saying that he was mentally unstable was an insult to people who have mental illness and that they shouldn't like uh, greenwald yeah mm-hmm. yeah right and i was like are you serious i'm like come on i by no means am i you know demeaning people with mental illness or, or you know making any or making light of that in yeah. any way but maybe we should take that into consideration when you're making political statements i mean come on but yeah completely after me yeah, and, and it's not unusual. And I think, you know, I get attacked from the left and the right when talking about Russia issues as well for the same reason that that I think it's, you know, it's not a spectrum. It is very much a three-dimensional space uh, at the far side of which is this completely unified nexus of disruptive voices mm-hmm. that are left, right, green, progressive, uh, you know, Nazi, whatever, that all <laughs> sort of fuse into the same space in the U.S. and Europe uh, in particular, um, where they're contributing toward the same goals, which for whatever reason, whether it be like clean water in Detroit is the most important thing and the endless wars come home, leave the world to Putin or, uh, you know, enough of this war stuff. Let's come home and build a wall because immigration is terrible. Give mm-hmm. the world to Putin. It's the same logic and it's the same advantage for Putin. And we just don't spend enough time talking about the importance of these issues and the sort of the, the, the reason why Russia spends time in that space of disruption. And we don't talk about it enough. And I think it, listening to the democratic debates and sort of the, you know, the debate within the party on these issues, you know, there's a real struggle within the democratic party on the disruption versus return to normalcy narratives. And I think the point that resonates with many people, the same way it resonated with many people when Trump used it was this idea that something within the current system does not work for all Americans mm-hmm. and changes and change is really needed. And um, that's being exploited. Well, exactly. And that's the point is like getting people to understand that the need for transformative change to benefit all Americans is not the same as setting everything on fire and watching it burn and laughing. And that is what we have right now in the space that Russia exploits is to set it on fire and watch it burn. Right. Which is um, what's happening every day. And I, I, it horrifies me as someone who cares about the health of our republic, um, as do you. Um, when when Nancy Pelosi reportedly stood up in that meeting um, with Donald Trump over Syria and what the hell's going on, and said, "Seem all things, all roads seem to lead back to Putin with you." Yep. He allegedly had this meltdown, which was interesting because it probably hit home too much for him. Um, you wrote a a piece in 2017 in Politico called Putin's Real Long Game. Um, And the the subtitle is The World Order We Know Is Already Over and Russia's Moving Fast to Grab the Figure, uh, Moving Fast to Grab the Figure Out, The New War in Time to Win It. And looking back at your perspective then and looking at where we are now, um, how much of it do you, do you go back and go, holy shit, I never thought that this would be as true as it was when I wrote it in 2017? I, uh, well, I was hoping we'd be further ahead in, in doing something about it by now. I think – look, the, the the challenge coming out of 2016 um, 
was always going to have been that the entire, like everything that's supposed to protect us Americans failed completely in 2016. The intelligence community, politicians, the media, the president, uh, you know, everybody whose job it is to protect us from foreign attack, essentially, knew bits of what Russia was doing. And for various reasons that we don't have to get into, and I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, conspiracy or ill will or anything else. I just think everybody was focused on the wrong thing and not really focused on what this was actually going to achieve at the time. Um, But everybody failed to counter what Russia was doing, to alert the American public to what was going on, and to give us any ability to defend ourselves at this new kind of attack that targets individuals and citizens directly and not the state as a whole. And um, because we have a president who benefited from that and from day one made it very clear that he didn't care if that was the case, at the very least, like you can, again, interpret his motivations in a variety of contexts, but was not going to do anything about this and has continually tasked people in the government not to look at this, despite the continued effort of intelligence agencies and others to take steps to counter this and to develop new um, capabilities and tactics to counter some of it. Um, The president does not care about this. And that has given us... care about it, Molly. He is trying to disprove it. it yeah that's the part absolutely I mean, apathy is bad enough but he's like a co-conspirator in all of this yeah i mean look when there's all the questions about the president his motivations does he know does he not know you know i think at this point it's really hard to say he doesn't know anything um when there's all the questions about that combined with um everything else you know mark zuckerberg doesn't think that lies on his platform are a problem you know nobody's going to do anything about all these other things right instagram too right they just we just found out we already know that facebook had a, a, a russian infiltration problem with all the crap that was on instagram uh, on facebook in 2016 yeah. and apparently creeping up again but it's now, on it's instagram. on everything yeah, yeah it's yeah. i mean we we sort of we minimize it to talk about Facebook, Twitter, a little bit on Instagram and some other things like some Reddit groups, because uh, there's some places we've gotten data from where we can actually sort of look at it in a quantitative way. But this is any means of information dissemination, any social media, YouTube, Reddit, 4chan, 8chan, um, the place where there's been very little analysis because it's completely opaque um, in many respects. But there's been a little bit of commentary on Telegram and WhatsApp groups that are used in the same kind of way. But a place where Russia is really active and no one pays any attention to it because it's really hard is in all the gamer chat groups and sort of the live online interactive platforms. It's a really good way to target uh, and recruit people in a completely uh, sort of defense-free environment. Um, but anywhere the they... Heard, that is the first I've heard that, and that's scary, oh, yeah. because now we're targeting a very specific demographic of younger people, more isolated people, yes. who um, are prime targets to be groomed into believing more radical things and feeling a part of something, uh, which yeah. would motivate them then to act. Like, I don't know, maybe carry out a mass shooting? Or well, God knows what. This is the this is the thing is people who spend a lot of time on uh, audience identification and understanding um, the importance of building and identifying the correct targets in the information environment well in advance, which the Russians know and they talk about it a lot. The head of RT has given a number of interviews talking about essentially everything that RT does. I mean, yes, the propaganda value is nice, but the main purpose of all of the Russian state media apparatus is essentially audience generation. It's to to pre-cultivate the landscape so you know exactly who to target with information at the exact right time. Um, 
they do this in a lot of ways. They play around a lot. Um, we've gotten anecdotal evidence and reporting um, from, you know, band fan groups. Like the, there was this one kid who brought this great information to us about the way that like a fish fan club, like the band fish had been infiltrated by these weird pro Trump, pro Russian voices before 2016 and sort of like wow. change, change the tone of the whole group. And in a, you know, in like the hands off, there's no cost to failure environment of what Russian intelligence does. Um, you know, people have like these quotas of things they're supposed to do, but you know, they probably have a lot of leeway. So of course, some guy who's a fan of fish is probably going to find the fish fan group and do his work in that space because like, <laughs> you know, why not? Right. But wow. there's like these crazy examples of, um, of, opportunities to look for people of susceptible mindsets um, to sort of target, uh, develop a relationship and rapport with within a community, and then slowly over time, introduce new information, uh, political content, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Would you say and, that's another a reason why they targeted the NRA? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, this this whole notion of like, oh, Russia's really big on gun rights. No, like, absolutely not. Like, Russia's not a country right. where people are allowed to have guns at home <laughs> um, because there's a Second Amendment. Like, right. no. I mean, this was this was a, a, the understanding of tactical alliance. At some point, there was sort of the, uh, I mean, from the 90s, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russians were very focused on, okay, we just lost all of these ideological means of influence that we cultivated over 70 years. What the hell do we use now? And the very systematic um, attempt to, to grow new relationships in influential communities, be they religious, uh, you know, cultural, sort of through arts and, and other things, business, technology, basically anywhere you can send an envoy, they did looking for friendly faces and voices and allies. Um, and, uh, you know, this has now sort of come out 20 years later in this ridiculous landscape that if you look at it, there's a lot of Russian money in a whole lot of places and it tends to be very strategically focused. Um, and boy, wouldn't it have been nice if we had paid attention to lot, that a lot sooner. That is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> Do you think that part of that long-term strategy was uh, why Russia placed so much money? It's also money laundering too, but why they invested so much money in real estate in places like New York and Miami? Um, I, the real estate, for some extent, is just the money laundering. Like, how do we get yeah. this useless money out of Russia into places where we can use it for other things? Um, but it's but also yes, given uh, access though to some. People. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at look at the Giuliani, I, uh, Parnas, Fruman, the, you know, relationship and and what that's gotten them. Absolutely, and and you know, the the real estate investments are always targeted. There is the money laundering aspect, but they're for a reason. You know, is there was it an accident that Russia bought the entire Bulgarian coastline? Nope, not really. You you know, that was that was that was pretty strategically focused. Like, yes, nice beachfront property, but also for a reason. Montenegro. Um, Montenegro, same. <laughs> um, in the Baltics, they really focus on those border purchases. You know, it's just there's a lot going on. But um, but I think that that's sort of the, the the thing you highlighted about the NRA is so critical because there has been this long term belief coming out of the Soviet period, moving into the new phase of how do we develop new influence places of understanding 
there was already uh, sort of long-term established relationships on the ideological left, the sort of soft on communism, green movements of the world where there was this, you know, long-term relationship or sympathies on socialistic things. Um, and understanding that they didn't care about that, and they didn't need it. What they needed was access to conservative groups. And that was the, the cultivation over the years and, and partially domestically for Putin and his own identity building. But this, um, the cultivation of relationship with traditional values groups, with um, in extremely tactical ways with like evangelicals um, and others. And I think you can sort of map it out, but I, it, it's really easy to say that at some point they sort of sat down with the four item post-it note of, okay, we want to influence Republicans in America. How do we do it? And it's like, well, you need the evangelicals, you need the gun people, you know, you need these right like wacko bird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need the media. And then you need a couple of like huge investors um, on side on ideas of things. Right. And they did that. <laughs> and it it all just happened to come together in this wonderful Trump Pence oh, ticket um, in really strange ways that we just that there still hasn't been enough time to unravel. I think there's a lot that's going to come out on the NRA side, just mm-hmm. in terms of just even just the money, the fact that the NRA was clearly willing to move large sums of sketchy ass money into campaigns on behalf of whoever. Um, there's been some attention to the ways that the Russian Orthodox Church, which you know in Russian views evangelicals as like Satanists, but in English. Oh, we're all such friends on traditional mm-hmm. values. But the way that they've used relationships with Franklin Graham's group and others um, to be present in D.C. at these crazy like world family Congress, world you know world families Congress or whatever it is. But the really traditional values focused anti-abortion, anti-gay groups summits use that as an opportunity to access Mike Pence. Um, so, right after the so election, are, there was one in, of these. This is interesting because I was unaware of that aspect of the Russian influence that you know. I Obviously, I know about the NRA, but they've also done this now using the Russian Orthodox Church to target the evangel- political evangelical base. Yeah, there's there. I mean, the, the relationship between the two has been growing for some time. But wow. um, there was this you started seeing signs of some softening on policy positions sort of in the 2016 environment. But right after the election, or right after the inauguration, sort of early 2017, there was some uh, big evangelical thing in D.C., um, part of which was at the Trump Hotel, of course, of part course of which was, was part of which was at a different hotel. <laughs> but um, where the Franklin Graham, one of the Franklin Graham groups um, had I think they had open funding from the Russian Orthodox Church for oh this con- for this conference. God, but of course the Russian Orthodox Church sent over uh, one of their creepiest bishopy guys um, to be at the conference, and Graham like had invited Pence to give a speech and either before or after pulled Pence into the room for the private meeting. And, Oh, there's this Russian guy here and he wants to talk about Syria. You know, it's like, Jesus, like Uh, really, was that reported a little bit, but not in as much detail as people should have paid attention to. I would, I would also like to know who provided the iPads that were gifts to the people at the conference and and what sort of malware were on those. (laughs) You know, that is, the American people have no idea. I'm sure people We're just, listening to this podcast right now are, are going, holy shit, this is way well, worse than we could have ever imagined. 
<laughs> I just think the, 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 the best thing about our country and the thing that gives us tremendous advantage and adaptability and, you know, all of the things that we've been able to achieve through history has been the fact that we're a very optimistic nation and we're very open and we're very naive on many things. The sort of lack of encumbrance of historical baggage has been an asset in some respects, but we are very uh, disbelieving of other people having ill intentions. And I think it's not just Russians like, I, you know, this is what I focus on. So I know the details of it, yeah. but China doing exactly same things on scale That's times true. 10, at, at least in terms of have a free iPad or, you know, Samsung tablet or yes. whatever at the, at the conference, like they do the same types of things to cultivate influence. And as we have seen in the last few weeks, Chinese soft power comes with lots of strings attached when needed. Um, and I just think we need to be a little more aware of all these places where the free money has been coming for so long, like the free money isn't free. Um, right. And and when we're in this sort of unspoken ideological battle between any sort of liberal world order, democratic values, idea that individual lives matter within a system versus digital enabled dictatorship and authoritarianism of mass state surveillance, arrest and killing scale of China – um, like this is a real thing and we need to pay attention to the pivot point that we're at where either we really fight through this extremely difficult period of technology is changing everything and we still need to understand what matters for us, the individual humans on the other side, or we just sort of give up and let this idea that a few very powerful actors will entirely sculpt the future become the thing. And I don't think most of us want to live in that world, but we haven't yet had the full come to Jesus with ourselves that mm-hmm. if you're reading 1984 or I Fahrenheit 451 yeah, or Brave New it. World, yeah, if you're reading any of the, if the great sort of mid-century dystopian novels, we're not Right now, we're not the guy hiding the books. Like, we're not the guy, you know, fighting the system who doesn't want to take his happy pills. Like, we're not that guy. <laughs> right now, we're the people who, you know, watch the four-walled TV and absorb the reality show because it's easier than having to fight the fight. And I think America writ large needs to have that fight with itself, that this matters, that we need to be there, that we need to fight this fight, that the why does it matter anyway question that we constantly debate about foreign policy is, well, it matters because either we live in a world where we define the rules or we live in a world where China and Russia define the rules. And right now we're losing that fight. Um, I don't think any of us want to live in the Chinese-Russian crap world. So right. it would be nice if we all wake up and understand that it matters, <laughs> that we're sort of out there doing things. And that doesn't need to mean giant wars and you know endless foreign aid, that there are smarter tactical ways to be engaged. Uh, it's the reason we built the transatlantic alliance after World War II. That is why we are a vastly prosperous, powerful nation. Um, and if we think we can abandon all of that and still have the same type of leverage, power and prosperity and safety, then we're just stupid. And so many people left and right now believe that this is somehow possible, that if we just pull all American wealth and power home and focus on building happy communities with clean water and lots of guns and, you know, no more police, like, we'll all just police ourselves or whatever. It's insane. It's complete madness. Right. Um, and I would, I would argue that that's Putin's real longing. It's, it's to create that chaos to question, get, get Americans to question the fundamental values that we have of freedom and, pro, and independence and liberty. And that way he can fill the power vacuum along with other bad actors in the world. Um, and as we come to a close, 
uh, leads me to to ask you why should the American people care about what about Trump's decision to pull our troops from Syria, betray the Kurds, um, side with another despot like Turkey and Erdogan? Why should people care about this? Because we're starting to see Republicans actually have some balls and criticize the president, but not that much. Um, why should they care? Why is this consequential? What's happening right now in, in Syria and Turkey? It, it's it's a really good question and sort of getting to the well it matters that we're in the world having a positive influence sculpting things in the right way for us for our interests and our values and our defense and our prosperity um the the model of what we were doing in syria and there has been some attention to this from the very few people in congress who have sort of a special forces background but um the the vast majority of the work that was being done in northern syria for the last five years, the securing of the entirety of northern Syria was basically done by two special forces teams. So that's like 26 guys, probably. Yeah. And this is and and the 26 guys were basically in charge of using local partners, training local partners, coordinating with the local partners who were, in many cases, these Kurdish militia groups. Um, uh, to gather intelligence, process intelligence, target more effectively when we're talking about targeting ISIS and uh, other things. Um, but we have a small footprint to sort of facilitate local partners in doing these things. It was the reason Special Forces was created this way back in the 60s. Like, this is what it's supposed to do. This is the model of what we want to be doing, where you don't need, you know, 40,000 Americans deployed with full kit to uh, secure an area where a very small sort of train advise uh, and equip mission can do the same types of things um, using uh, the local environment in a smarter way. This is what we want to be doing in the world. So but, and that's what we should be doing in Afghanistan at this point as well. Absolutely. And I think that there have been attempts to move to that model that have been somewhat, you know, fraught in many ways but you know the same the same there hasn't really been a lot of discussion yet of like this is what we do in ukraine right we have the same type of thing where there's a very small u.s footprint that provides a tremendous amount of training assistance to the newly rebuilt ukrainian army um so that it can defend its so they can defend their own country from from russia and the, the fact that the entire uh, Ukrainian armed forces has basically been built, been rebuilt in wartime, um, in their conflict with Russia as Russia has invaded and backs these local crazy groups in the east um, of Ukraine. But it's the same thing there, where a very small, almost invisible U.S. presence in Ukraine has provided this tremendous capability, and it's such a great partnership. And we learn a ton from being there, from the Ukrainians, and and just by watching the environment. This is how we should be in the world, and and. It, the the you know sort of outcost of this versus what we gain um, is the type of thing where the math looks really great if you look at it and the success stories are very real. Um, when and did so, that partnership with Ukraine start? Was that after 2014 under the Obama administration? And has the sure. Trump administration kept this going, or have they undermined it? So there's been, um, you know, since independence and the collapse of the Soviet Union, we've had um, an ongoing partnership with Ukraine uh, in a variety of respects that sort of had ups and downs. Uh, one of the downs was certainly when President Yanukovych was back in power, sort of right. leading up to the events of the Euromaidan protests at the end of 2013. And then his ouster from power at the beginning of 2014, followed immediately by the Russian invasion and annexation of Crimea, and then the launch of the 
war in eastern Ukraine. Um, so from that time period forward, there's been a, a very quiet, even under President Obama, sort of renewed effort to provide productive assistance there, um, particularly in the training space. Um, the, you know, the, the Obama administration's um, sort of continual hamstringing of itself with things mostly led to this idea of we can't provide lethal aid to the Ukrainians because we don't actually want them to fight the Ru- to think they can fight the Russians because then they'll make the fighting worse. It was the sort of silly circular logic of like, we want them to defend themselves, right. but but not really defend themselves. And things that were, were defined as offensive weapons included, you know, night vision goggles and clearly things that aren't offensive. And anyway, so I think a lot of the kind of painful hamstringing logic dissolved, thankfully, at the end of the Obama administration. And the people in Congress and in the Pentagon and in our armed forces who had been pushing for more aid and in the State Department who had been pushing for for increased aid to Ukraine um, kind of got a little window to do this when basically the White House wasn't really paying attention um, and moved forward with a lot of this stuff as rapidly as they could. Um, but again, it's very small scale. It's just enormously successful. And, which is what makes this whole Trump holding up security assistance to Ukraine in order to pressure them to give him political dirt on Joe Biden or research a conspiracy theory regarding this server is so nefarious, right? Because that's like, are you kidding me? This is really consequential. Ukraine depends on this to, to beat back Russia and you're playing with this. This is, you know, that, that kind of quid pro quo is completely corrupt. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the, the Trump defender talking point from the beginning of 2017 has been, yeah, OK, we don't like what he says. And there's this weird stuff with Putin and whatever. But, you know, if you actually look at things on the ground, like the Trump administration has been really tough on Russia, which, yes or no, you can argue various things. There are indeed plenty of extremely positive things happening in terms of our military deployments, uh, preparations and capability in Europe and in Ukraine and in some of the other Eastern partnership countries. Yes, there have been really positive things happening. Our army and Navy and Air Force and Marines know what they're doing and know what they need and have been pushing forward on all of these fronts in a very, very quiet way. The sort of hazardous... Was that more because of Mattis's influence early on? Mattis absolutely had a role in this, as did other military commanders. This is a long-term thing. The military is probably the most clear-eyed on what Russia is and what it does in Europe uh, as compared to other things. Um, so, I mean, there was this space and time, but but sort of the, the peril within this entire calculus has always been, oh, God, if the White House pays attention, it could all dissolve. And we know it. And I think that the problem with this logic of just keep doing the work and it doesn't really matter if Trump is crazy is that moment in Ukraine where suddenly this extremely successful work is just like like the point of all of it is just unraveled by uh, a tweet or a stupid phone call or, uh, you know, personal pursuit of conspiracy um, and in ways that stress our alliances, um, uh, you know, our partnerships, our, our values in absolutely catastrophic ways. And it's so hard to measure the impact of the craziness and chaos against any positive productive work that can be done at the functional working level. Like, yeah, it's really great that we, uh, you know, that, that like the security assistance for Ukraine got released. But in the meantime, we've basically said to the Ukrainians, well, you better make it, make, make your own deal with Putin because we may or may not be there. Good luck. Let us know how it turns out. Unbelievable. And you, and similar, you just can't compare those right, things. Yeah. Right. And the similar thing happened with Trump's decision to bow to Turkey's uh, yep. desire 
and pull, when we pulled out, and now our Kurdish allies, who have been so instrumental in helping us defeat ISIS over there, they're being slaughtered, and Donald Trump's just like, I don't give a shit. I, I mean, Basically. I, and it's, I, the damage to that, it's similar, same thing. All Sometimes you just gotta let them fight, right? right. Like, what? what? I mean, what? Unbelievable. It's just some sand. There's a lot of sand over there, and... Uh, well, and just the, I mean, okay, how many Kurds are there? I don't know, but not as many Turks. I mean, not as many as Turks, and just this idea that, like, uh, you know, these little militia groups in the desert should be ready and capable to fight an army if they need to is the same dumb logic that people tried to sort of use in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia, that it was somehow the Georgians' fault as if a country of three million people, you know, with a tiny army, most of which was deployed in Iraq helping us at the time, was going to start a war with Russia, which has like a, you know, three million person standing army. Like, yeah, it's really great logic. Like, no, yeah, I mean. that makes a lot of sense that they would do that in their self-interest. Sure, it's a, it's a kamikaze mission. Oh, my God. So I just, yeah, the president not helping in this respect. And I just think everywhere there are these new fault lines of fragility that if if we get a new president in the new term and they are really, really, really focused, and this is also a concern for me, given that Democrats do not seem very focused on foreign policy or any of these things yet uh, in their own campaigning and in their own uh, discussions, if we have a president that comes in with an actual agenda to restore our reputation and partnerships with our allies, with the allies we absolutely need to be safe and be productive in the world, then then I think people will be, there will be that window of like, oh, please God, let this nightmare end. Yes, let's all be friends again. But not if there is a second Trump administration where you have the same nonsense where, you know, after insulting our allies for another two weeks over crap in Europe, suddenly they're like, hey, NATO, is anybody going to send some more air policing down here to the Gulf to help us with our Syria-Iran craziness? And it's like, no, nobody's going to send you any planes. Good luck. Let me know how that turns out. Right, right. It's, it's just crazy. Well, um, now that I'm completely depressed and I want to <laughs> just move to Italy and live in like go into exile like Napoleon and Elba. Italy is also crazy. Pretty much the last the last place that's OK is New Zealand. But all the billionaires have bought like private armies there. So we're kind of screwed. Oh uh, but gosh. maybe Australia. New Zealand is great. It's my second favorite <laughs> it is. place it's in the great. world. Um, my husband and they and I still went... have a sane rational government. Yes, they do. And my husband and I had the pleasure of celebrating his 40th birthday there in 2015 and it was hopefully with lots of wine oh lots of wine we, we did like a like a marathon um trip in 10 days we did south Lovely. island north island milford sound Wyoming so we can all island. move to new zealand we and live in a bunker zealand, yeah if, if I, you know if italy goes under also i new zealand is not a bad alternative <laughs> molly you're welcome at our at our house in new zealand or italy huzzah i'll just live in the shed the shed is fine <laughs> no. I'm, I'm low maintenance i swear no no absolutely not you you get to sit, uh, seat at the table with the rest of us you're too smart and too funny and too much fun to be around to ever be in the shed no <laughs> molly McHugh, i can't thank you enough this has been such happy a to do it fascinating conversation and i feel smarter for having it with you and i hope my listeners do too and i definitely want to tap you again in the future because i have a feeling these this things will come up going away. Yeah. This, yes, especially absolutely. as 2020 <laughs> ramps up, we're going to see a lot more of this kind of Russia disinformation. The chaos, I don't think is going to get any better. I think it's going to get worse. And um, your expertise is, is, is appreciated. So Molly Q, thank you so much. Again, big thank you to Molly McHugh. Ooh, what a conversation that was. Uh, I learned a lot talking to her. Um, 
So I appreciate her. I'm going to probably have her back again as we watch what's going on. So uh, before I close, my quick feel-good story of this week uh, has to do with an organization called Hidden Heroes. Uh, My husband and I had the opportunity to go to their annual gala last week, and Tom Hanks is one of their big supporters. And he's really, a big shout out to Tom Hanks. He's really been a huge supporter of the military ever since his role as Forrest Gump. He's really been involved and active in this organization specifically. It's actually run by Elizabeth Dole, former Senator Bob Dole's wife, and she's a former senator herself from North Carolina. And her foundation started this thing called um, the Center, uh, I'm sorry, Hidden Heroes. And the website is hiddenheroes.org. What does Hidden Heroes do? They actually help support the caregivers of wounded service members. Now, a lot of times we have organizations that help the wounded warriors themselves, but very rarely do we actually have support systems for their caretakers, which anyone who's ever taken care of an injured soldier uh, or service member knows how taxing that can be. So I thought this was, it was a beautiful gala. Michelle Obama was the the Hidden Hero of the Year Award uh, recipient this year. Um, but uh, I just encourage people that if you want to find another way to help our, our injured service members, hiddenheroes.org is a, is a great organization to do that and to help support the, the caregivers. Um, so check them out at hiddenheroes.org. And if you're interested in that, it's my feel good story of the week. Great job. The Elizabeth Dole foundation. All right. That's it for, that's it for this week's edition of honestly speaking. Stay tuned for next week's edition. Um, who knows what, what will happen between now and then we know we'll have an impeachment vote. Uh, we, I'm sure Donald Trump will do something else crazy, but let me know if you have any questions, reach out to me at honestly underscore Tara on Twitter or at Tara Setmayer or on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Thanks for listening. See you next week.